Welcome back to the Green Rush Live. I am Josh Kincaid. I'm going to be your host while Jimmy is out. I'm also the host of the Talking Hedge. That's your cannabis business podcast. Today, we're talking about uh, everything that is cannabis science today. So we've got uh, a couple of great guests today. Uh, one of them is going to be Trey Reckling, founder and director of the Academy of Cannabis Sciences. We've also got Dr. Jokobus Zeeperkus. Uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of uh, Adenox. And so we're going to be talking about uh, everything cannabis for the next, um, I guess, 25 minutes here. Um, jumping right in, um, let's talk about the entourage effect, Trey. What is the entourage effect? Oh, the entourage effect. It's its that thing that we wish more cannabis consumers knew about, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's recognizing that the cannabis plant has oh, well over 100 cannabinoids or active ingredients, Although we usually only talk about the rock stars, we talk about THC and CBD, uh, but increasingly people are aware that there are just a host of, of active chemicals called cannabinoids. And the idea of, um, and not only cannabinoids, but but terpenes and other synergistic elements in the plant. And the idea that um, it's a symphony effect. It's a it's um, an entourage of all the, the possible effects from the plant uh, work together to have a better total combined effect than any singular component. So kind of going to the symphony and making sure we're not just yelling for the tubas, we make use of all the instruments on the stage sort of thing for that for that entourage effect. So would it be uh, fair to say that uh, an isolate is probably not as good as like flower, for example, that has full spectrum? Um, personally, yeah, on the most base level, I would say that, but then it, we know they have their role, right? If you're formulating a medicine and you need to be uh, precise and you're trying to target a condition, you know, there's that school of thought, which, you know, mostly Western medicine, where we, uh, we can finesse something to, to be perfect for a condition. Um, but in the meantime, I, I, I personally like the uh, more holistic plan approach, you know, where we're trying to use the whole range of compounds in the plant but I, you know we know that's problematic for some people who might have allergies or other conditions wow. that need to be accommodated for so um so yeah but you know a lot of people don't know this and they they pick up a pack of edibles and it says 10 milligrams of thc per serving and they're like okay that's what i need um but some consumers just don't know they're they're leaving a lot on the table you know there's a there's a lot of compounds terpenes cannabinoids and the rest flavonoids that um they might feel uh, a great effect from or even have some significant health benefit from yeah and maybe we can jump into some of those more uh minor or rare cannabinoids um as as the podcast gets going but uh dr zaburkis i want to talk to you about the stigma do you is your opinion that the stigma of cannabis is still there or is it being removed within the scientific community what's your personal take on cannabis and the stigma I think the stigma, it is still there, but it's very much is fragmented at the moment. I'm noticing that the universities and the academicians and the researchers or clinicians that are in the states where cannabis has robust medical cannabis programs and even uh, adult use programs, they're more open to it because they're surrounded by it and their patients or their subjects are somehow involved or are partaking either for medicinal purposes or otherwise recreational purposes. Mm. However, if you go down into the academic halls, as I say, 
there's still skepticism whether medical cannabis is not just a front for having a good time. And uh, there's also, I think, you know, some issues with the leadership. I think that a lot of the academic leadership is an older generation folks. They are, I am, you know, uh, coming to a mature age myself, more or less, but I would say most of the university-run department chairs and research facilities, they're run by people that are in their 60s. And there is a disconnect there. And I even hear from some of my colleagues at the university in their 60s saying, well, you know, I did this when I was in Woodstock, but, but now it's no longer that Woodstock type of weed that we're talking about, but they're really not even interested in finding out the details of it. So I think that there's fragmentation, there's more acceptance coming in, but it's also a generational thing, I believe, that, that, that needs to be uh, looked at, not just uh, whether it's uh, uh, something that has been proven to be medicinally valuable or valuable for research purposes. Hmm. So, Trey, what is it going to take for the com- scientific community? Um, I-, I originally wrote the question and I asked, when is the scientific community going to find something ma- meaningful? that's going to benefit and debunk the international classification of cannabis as a schedule one narcotic. But rather than trying to pick out a crystal ball and say, when I'm going to say, what, what is it going to take in order for the scientific community to debunk uh, cannabis as a schedule one narcotic? It's, you know, it's a good question. Um, sometimes it takes crisis, you know, our um, sadly, the opioid, opioid crisis mm. in America and, and wider than America has has helped people to examine themselves, their families, their own practices, doctors to examine how they prescribe medicine, you know, and, and looking at tens of thousands of deaths and more a year, um, I think people are willing to, to look at a lot of things differently. You know, um, pain management has is, is kind of been on a single track for a long time, and we see how that track can, can end up to be really deadly for folks. So I think that crisis alone can do a lot and is doing a lot, you know, because while all this news is going on about the pharmaceutical companies and how many billions of dollars they're getting sued, there's a steady trickle of continued research about cannabis, this legitimate research that is now is so now is beginning to be supported by the federal government after it's been blocked for decades, uh, decades and decades. Um, so, you know, while one thing is is becoming realized, you know, the dangers of of um, an opioid approach, there's something comes up at the same time because we know pain's not going away. And anybody in serious pain will tell you, look, I'll take about anything to take care of this. And so I think, you know, there's a great opportunity there. And um, and like Dr. Chokuba said, you know, sometimes it's, it's the young people leading us. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as a new generation comes on and says, look, you know, you, I, I was taught misinformation and I want to know the real information. So I think that curiosity gets us a long way. And so do outliers, you know, those early adopters who say, look, you know, this is not popular in my community, but um, I'm a pastor, I'm a, a senior citizen, I'm some, uh, I'm a member of a minority who's been crushed by the laws around this drug. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to speak up because my community needs to know they could be getting benefit from this. And they're still believing the old hype about how dangerous this is, you know. So I think, I think it's a, a lot of fronts going on at the same time in the benefit um, and in the positive for the reputation of cannabis as a medicine. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've heard some uh, folks talk about the CB1, CB2 receptor cell. I think this is part of like the entourage effect. Uh, Dr. Ethan Russo talks about how if you take, uh, you know, any kind of painkiller, it's going to just sit and hover on top of those receptor cells instead of being drawn into. Um, and that's part of the endocannabinoid system is these cannabinoids are built for these receptors rather than just being like duct tape. Uh, and causing your body to be in a state of dis-ease, it's creating more of um, uh, a, a dynamic um, balance between the two. And so I'm curious, uh, maybe uh, Dr. Z, you can talk about um, if cannabinoids are being redefined on how we approach and treat diseases. I think you're on, a, you're on mute. <clears throat> It's a great question. It's a deep question. And I think it, in general, maybe I should place this in a broader perspective that I think that the pharmaceutical companies are reevaluating and seeing benefits in plant derived medications too. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I do believe that the next two decades are going to usher a lot of cannabinoid-derived medications into the pharmaceutical, over-the-counter, and prescription medication realm. It's very limited so far because, as you know, in the United States, on the pharmaceutical side, we only have synthetic THC that's approved for nausea, vomiting, wasting syndrome, and uh, plant-derived cannabidiol, CBD, 10%, which is in the form of a drug epidiolex. And that drug is taking over a substantial share of the uh, pediatric epilepsy and pediatric seizure market just by itself, despite the fact that many different CBD preparations being out there in over-the-counter world and, and the, just the, the store world. So how is it how is cannabinoids cannabinoids are going to be very important so far we spend our time on thc cbd we're going to start looking people already started looking into more minor cannabinoids there's going to be a library of cannabinoid and cannabinoid combinations in different ratios as you mentioned to effectively bind to whether it's cb1 cb2 receptor or other systems in our bodies that it can target i also have to say that I have a strong feeling that on the on this wave of cannabinoid medications and even cannabinoid pharmaceuticals, we have a very fast-paced growing wave of psychedelic and other plant-derived active ingredients and medications. And I really believe that this is even going to be even more interesting from the therapeutic and medical perspective, potentially, than cannabinoids, because psychedelics are really about harm reduction about kicking the habit whatever the habit is it's treating the problems and it's really about the environments and the protocols by which people will be involved in the psychedelic medications rather than large growths that will have to sell a lot of a lot of cannabis so i always say that it's also very interesting because with cannabis you need a lot of cannabis to drive cannabinoids with psychedelics, for example, like fungi and mushrooms, you probably feed the entire city therapeutically from just a single home that grew that. So I think there's also interesting thing there, volume maybe, diversity in ingredients, and this approach from cannabinoids that is now leading us into other medications, and pharmaceutical companies are listening very intently.
is uh, the FDA currently the cannabis industry's biggest hurdle? I definitely don't want to make this a leading question, but in terms of ailments, in terms of getting the word out, in terms of um, educating people, is the FDA's um, uh, the, the FDA doesn't allow for us to make these these um, uh, these statements on 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 helping these ailments? Is that the industry's biggest hurdle, Trey? Oh, it's certainly one of them. It's certainly one of the largest legal hurdles, right? Um, but then you've got the AMA, who's been fairly tepid on uh, when it comes to cannabinoid medicine. They, they've improved. Uh, the AV, AVMA, people who know, who've been to their veterinarians, who want to have conversations with their veterinarians about cannabis medicine for their pets. Um, veterinarians feel kind of hamstrung and, and can't, can't professionally talk about this without risking my license. Um, and even healthcare professionals in our state in Washington can't use the substance without risking their own licenses. And so you've got people who could be champions for the plant who aren't allowed to talk about it, aren't allowed to use it. Um, so there are a lot of institutional barriers as well, you know, in, in addition to the stigma. Um, and then um, inability to transfer across state lines is, is I'm sure limiting research and affecting the way that that people can compare, um, you know, genetic uh, samples and and available medicines in, in their own states. So you know you're having to replicate some studies in different conditions or slightly different conditions. So there's a lot of things that that make this different. That we've created a system um, that works against this, right? Because up until not too long ago, it was still very illegal in most places. And it and you know it's it's always important to point out we've still got 50,000 people sitting in jail right now while some people are making millions of dollars some people are, are um, spending their lives in prison so so it's it, it's a real hypocrisy the whole system and so uh, um, but I'm glad it's um, you know I'm, I'm glad we're seeing some major change and and, and uh, Dr. Zaburkas I apologize I misspoke I mean I called you by I called you doctor by your first name so uh, I apologize for that it's all good. <laughs> how how about um, GMOs? Would you consider cannabis a GMO, Trey? Because Blue Dream is just not the same anymore. Well, I, I think people say that, but I think it's I think it's more appropriately to call it, say it's selectively bred, right? So where genetic modification actually is is about affecting and changing the the genome or the genetic uh, sample. Uh, what we've done is a tremendous amount of selective breeding that started. If, you know, a lot of people know when Paraquat started getting sprayed on on medical marijuana crops in California, people had to bring their stuff inside. And if you're growing inside, you got less landscape or, you know, less acreage to work with. So that's how people want to complain about the strength of the plant. But that that led to the strength of the plant and thousands of, of varietals that didn't, ex, you know, kind of these Frankenstein, you know, sugar daddy sugar daddy sweet cake cultivar and all that you know all that stuff that is a long way removed from the original intent so um so you know the selective breeding kind of took us we talk about in class or at the academy about going to the vet's office and you see the poster with the the wolf at the top and the teacup poodle and all the little specialty breeds at the bottom and that's where a lot of people are shopping right now is in the specialty breed categories um and, and some people who aren't older have never had an opportunity to try some of the land race strains, you know, that are more one-to-one -one ratio and more like nature intended. So, um, you know, we know there's a scramble for people to uh, preserve those 
those type of genetics. But um, yeah, sorry, I went off on a tangent there. But no, yeah, it's, I think I think it's a really important conversation as we get real excited about the variety that we don't lose um, our original, our true OGs, our original lands, uh, heirloom quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully somebody out there is holding some of those genetics for sure. I know they are with Acapulco Gold and White Widow and some of these old strains, but some of the good ones, uh, you know, you just don't see them anymore. Like I mentioned, Blue Dream of of 2008 just isn't the same anymore. Um, But hopefully people are going out and spreading the word. I know I just went to the vet for my cat who's got some kind of inflammation. I asked about CBG or anti-inflammatories. She had never heard of it. And so uh, she said she's going to do some research and see if she would recommend that I use it. Uh, since I put that in my coffee every day, maybe I'll start putting in my cat's coffee too. Um, when we talk about consistency in, in cannabis and the bioavailability issues, do you guys see that being solved through the nano emotion technology? Dr. Zaburkis, I'll start with you. Is nano emotion technology going to help with overdosing on edibles, for example, bioavailability, consistency? Absolutely. I think that the two key things, especially when you talk about edibles, is the speed, uh, the onset, when a person feels an effect from an edible, and if it is uh, an intoxicating or or, or euphoria-like effect from THC, or if it is uh, another sort of effect, more medicinal effect from other cannabinoids, or even inhibition of appetite by other cannabinoids, so I think that the onset is very important and how much of it gets into the blood. This is the bioavailability that you're talking about. Um, I'd, I'd like to put a blame on the cannabis industry and the cannabis companies themselves for not doing this research. Uh, I wanted to allude back a little bit to the FDA as a regulatory agency that you can persuade so it's, it's actually the fault of the large MSOs for not pouring in about half a billion to a billion dollars in the last five years in all of the medicinal aspects of cannabinoids and putting it on that DA table and saying, have a look, do you have anything better? Do you have anything that shows a lot more harm or, or, or things like that? I think so that's, that's, that's where I think we have to be a lot more proactive as a community actually in doing this research. And as you know, from multiple state operators for MSOs and medical research is a PR front. I realize that the hard way of really trying to do that as a part of MSO or persuading MSOs to do that. So uh, now when you talk about these nano emulsions, if it can solve the problem of having a fast onset and peak concentration in the blood in a fast period of time that is controllable and metabolizes quickly or in a controlled fashion, let's say if you can drink water or consume something and it, it reduces, whether it's a euphoric effect or something like that, it will be solutions for sure. And the again, the same cannabis companies should be already designing nano delivery and nano spray devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it there uh, a test to check for cannabis impairment? Trey, I know you've been a part of, uh, in Washington State, you've been a part, I think, of the Department of, um, is it Department of Transportation and Washington State Patrol with their, um, you know, intoxication, whatever, the DUI uh, issues. Do you know why a a system doesn't work yet for cannabis impairment? Any opinions Um, about that? Well, we're looking at cannabis like it's alcohol, once again, right? And we're assuming that the impairment from cannabis is going to be just as dangerous and debilitating as as impairment from alcohol, and and there's a depart uh, 
Department of, gosh, I forget specifically which department uh, did the study, but there are studies that show that the cannabis impairment is nothing like alcohol impairment for one. Uh, combined, they're worse than alcohol, right? More potentially dangerous. Um, but instead, I wish we were having a conversation about training officers on viewing reckless behavior because it's ultimately about poor driving behaviors or unsafe um, identifying unsafe driving practices that's more and, and and i want to be very clear we're never advocating for anybody to consume and drive right that's just not a smart move legally or public safety wise or anything but i, I wish we were having a conversation not in about catching people but one about educating people not to um training officers to look for reckless behavior that might be dangerous and then focus in on that regardless of of the cause is it because you were smoking a joint is it because you were texting is it because you were dropping fries between the seat you were trying to grab i mean i think we're losing just like we talk about the dangers of cannabis in the house without talking about bleach and liquid plumber and all the rest i think we lose the focus when we're just talking about catching somebody and saying oh you're above the threshold because as a patient i'm probably almost always above the the five nanogram threshold. Mm -hmm. um, technically, right? I wouldn't drive if I believed I was impaired, but um, I think the, the conversation needs to be readjusted. So mm -hmm. I, I dodged on you there, but. Mm. No, that's all right. Um, my next question, Dr. Zaburk, is how do you match the right cultivar to the right person? You obviously want to know, first of all, about the person in the endocannabinoid system. Some uh, of us have what we call high endocannabinoid tone and tolerability for cannabinoid molecules, whether they're endogenous or exogenous. Some of us have enzymes that produce a lot more of this endocannabinoid molecules in our bodies naturally. Therefore, we can also tolerate more naturally the exogenous cannabinoids that will bind to the same receptors that endocannabinoid molecules do. The second thing is you want to know what is exactly, not necessarily in the cultivar, but in the finished product. You want to know exactly what the subset of the main active cannabinoids in the flower or edible or finished product or oil, major terpenes, it's important to pay attention to that. And then trying to really match up the two, what is in the finished product to how that person's insight is reflected. We're not quite there yet. For that, I believe there are companies that are designing genetic tests that can tell you about your endocannabinoid state and potentially companies from Seattle, actually, in Washington, too, like EndoCanada. They're trying to look at this kind of a 23andMe approach for cannabinoid uh, interactions with your major systems and then the cannabinoid system state. And then on the other hand, what we have to do in the field, we have to, you know, we, we respect the strains and, and the genes and things like that, but the final output in the product or the flower is gonna be the slightly different. It's important to know those active ingredients. And so it's probably gonna happen in the next decade. There's going to be some smart, technology that's linked to genetic markers, other markers, the active ingredients in the plant, and some sort of a experience, consumer experience tracking that will help people refine the exact cultivars products that they are best fit. So Trey, I'm, I'm not comfortable sending my, my blood to 23andMe to find out what the best strain is. 
Um, and I've been smoking for 25 years and I haven't found the best strain yet. And it seems like when I do, they just change it or it, it modifies or it's not available or the grower moved states or stopped growing. You know what I mean? There's so mm -hmm. many, like my favorite right now is this hemp blunt stick from Panacea, three and a half grams for like $18 when it's on sale. And yet you can't find it. So I don't know if the farm is either got some spider mite issues or they just don't go to this store that always has 30% off or like whatever the reason is, there's always some reason you can't find what you want when you actually find what you want. So how do you go about finding what you like, Trey, or, or your students mm -hmm. at the Academy of Cannabis Science, how do they find what they want? Like what, what's a good way? Do you just go and get a pre-roll and you test out different cultivars or what's, what's your go-to? You know, I think it's a great question. We get to work with a lot of patients, a lot of patient providers, and we try to help people set their expectations in the way I think um, we're not naturopaths, but we work with them as our faculty. And, and some of the conversations they lead our, our students into is, is talking about being comfortable with a little inexactness and understanding this is holistic medicine. So instead of finding just the right cultivar, find the zone. Is it a is it a one-to-one -one ratio that makes you feel the best? Is it something that's prevalent uh, linalool, terpene? Is it a, a certain, is it linalool combined with um, another? Is it a limonene that's your combo? And then find out what that's related to. So you don't just have to rely on, on uh, Jack Herrera, but maybe Frosted Jack Rick is also in that family. So you can shop from the family and then ideally, if you're allowed to grow, um, stock up, you know, uh, get, learn to, uh, to cross and, and, and perpetuate some of that, that things, that, those things that are good for you um, so that you'll always have them on hand and know that they're grown cleanly. That's great. Uh, it's 420 somewhere, which means we've got to uh, get out of here and shut this thing down. So Dr. Zaburkis, where can they find you at? Where can they get some more information on where you're, where you're at? They can look up my name and they'll probably see a TEDx talk. And my company's name is Adendox, like A-D-E-N-D-O-X, adendox.com. And uh, they can reach out to me through there as well or on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Trey, where can people get some more information? Absolutely, from academyofcannabisscience.com. And we encourage you also to go to our YouTube page where we have dozens of hours of free education uh, with some really smart friends of ours from the industry. So That's awesome. All right, but I think with that, we're going to have to roll this one up. So we will see you guys next Friday. Again, I want to thank my guest, Trey Reckling, founder and director of Academy of Cannabis Sciences, and Dr. Yokubis Zaburkis, CEO and co-founder of Adenox. Appreciate both of you guys being here. Thank you very much. And everybody watching, come back next week. In the meantime, have a great weekend, and we'll see you guys all later. Peace. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on Pod 
Connex, and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.